Hey everyone, and welcome to the Balanced Bodies Blueprint. I am your host, Vinny Russo. And I am your co-host, Dr. Aaron Stansfield. And we're shifting gears from all the conventional fitness narrative you hear on most fitness podcasts, as our main emphasis lies in preventative healthcare, adopting a holistic approach to nutrition, and challenging the traditional views on various fitness topics. Our mission with this podcast is to provide you with the information you need to achieve optimal health. And right. on today's podcast, what's going on? We got Brandon DeCruz back on the show uh, I know everyone enjoyed his his first episode, so we had to have him back. And we're going to talk about something that's a little bit near and dear to his heart. Um, but before we do that, for any new listeners who might not know you, which is pretty hard to believe, but why don't you just give a brief rundown of who you are um, and then what you do for a living, and then we could dive into the topic of discussion. All right. So first and foremost, guys, I appreciate you guys having me back on. I think I might be the first, I was the first guest. I know that for a fact, but I might be the first repeat guest. So if I am, yes. I, I'm truly yeah. appreciative of that. I'm glad that we, you know, Vinny, you and I have had a, a friendship for a long period of time and I'm really cool. You know, we were speaking off air that we've been able to turn what was a passion into a profession. And it's great. You know, I'm someone that I don't see any of this as a competition. Like I love seeing people fulfill their passions and do yeah. good work. And I love aligning myself with like-minded individuals. And I remember uh, just like a little caveat, you told me about Eric years ago actually and you were like you would love this this person i'm starting to work with her and this was like the beginning this is actually when you were still vr so this yeah. was not balanced body so yeah. you know it's just um, a testament to being able to engage with like-minded individuals but from my perspective you know i am a online physique and um physique coach and nutritionist I have been doing this since 2013. So I, I started pretty early on in terms of coaching. And just throughout that time, I've worked with everyone from IFBB level, you know, professional bodybuilders and competitors to lifestyle clients like Lifestyle Lisa and Gem Pop Gym. And at this point, I've really just tried to bridge the gap between research and information and then practical application. Really, my entire everything that I do, honestly, whether it be coaching clients in the trenches, it be mentoring other coaches that are coming up in this field, or even just getting on a podcast, I'm really trying to spread quality information because we're in a, we're lost in a sea of misinformation, disinformation. And unfortunately, you know, when we were coming up, we only had forums and we had boards and we didn't mm -hmm. have the accessibility to quality information. And nowadays we're in a completely different demographic where we have access and exposure to so much information, but it can be overwhelming. It's really hard because there's so many individuals that have these huge platforms. And Vinny, I know that you love going after these guys. You're like a, <laughs> Elaine Norton Jr. over here where you're like, you're doing the stitch videos and things like that. And that's, that's personally not my style, but I will say that a big thing with me is that I'm really trying to get across quality information and trying to create clarity on complex topics that I find that many people, whether they're competitors, they're lifestyle clients, people in the general population, often find confusing and they're under misinterpretations or they've been misled by individuals that have a huge influence or have a big platform, yet they don't have the education nor the experience to really provide them with value that they're going to be able to apply to their lives. So we have individuals out there with millions of followers telling people not to eat oats or that gluten is going to kill them, or there's mm -hmm. so many, you know, or, or that they'll damage their metabolism if their diet and, and things like that. And it's really where I come from is I'm trying to really, um, be a great example of evidence-based practice. And that's not only what the literature said. It is, you know, evidence-based practice in and of itself is a three-pronged model, which considers the best of the available body of evidence, the experience and the expertise of the clinician, or in this case, us as coaches, and then also the experience 
the preferences, the abilities, the limitations, and the lifestyle constraints of the clients that we're working with. And it's a beautiful culmination of those three, that, that triangle essentially, that allows us to really help people go from good to great and really be able to improve not only their body composition, but their life, their health, and their overall longevity, both within you know the context of physique sport, but then also just in their day-to-day -day lives, like really helping people to improve their health, improve their function, how they feel, how they perform, how they look, and then also the things that they can do in their day-to-day -day activities, like being able to engage with their loved ones or take their kids to the park and things like that. So I have a really big passion for really trying to take high, you know, you know, kind of complex topics and try to break them down as clearly as possible. But I often don't want to make them so simple that we lose some of the nuanced aspects that really do need to be touched on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the main reasons why we bring you on for specific topics, because you have this really good ability to take something that's very complex and teach it down to, for lack of a better term, the layman, right? Like you take the, these research topics that you dive deep into and you take that information, you summarize it, and then you break it down for individuals who aren't that equipped to be able to break down a research article like you can. Uh, but that's one of the main reasons why we really want you on is because you're very good at explaining very, very specific topics. Like if we could, do, uh, we know you have a ton of topics you could talk about, but we don't want this to be a 17 hour uh, podcast. <laughs> we want a nice 45 minute deep dive into a specific topic that you break down and just simplify it for everybody listening. So. You got it, my man. Always here to provide value. And I'm, I'm happy to be able to do that, especially because there are a lot of topics that they don't get the light. And especially the one that we're going to cover today, they don't get the proper education and limelight or spotlight on them. But they are things that people could be commonly experiencing or have people in their own lives that have gone through or have been in a similar situation and they don't even know the symptoms or they don't know the habits, the behaviors that predispose someone towards, you know, relative energy deficiency, which is the topic we're going to cover today. So I really do try to empower people with education. And that comes not only for the general population, but also coaches. I've had so many coaches over the years reach out to me and be like, dude, I've never heard of that concept. And I started yeah. digging into PubMed as a result of one of your podcasts. And it really opened up my eyes and my understanding of what one of my clients was going through. She had hypothalamic amenorrhea. I didn't realize, you know, why she had lost, you know, she had the cessation of her menstrual cycle for three or more months, you know, during a contest prep or, you know, just during a dieting phase. And I didn't understand how to reverse it. And I felt like I was in no man's land and he, they were very confused. And then often, especially within the coaching context is we get into this place where we think that we're not good enough, or we think that there isn't a solution or that this is an abnormality or mm -hmm. we've suffered from imposter syndrome. And it's like, listen, if you dig deep enough, you will find an answer. Yeah. Yeah. So let's dive into it because I mean, you, you mentioned it, we're going to be talking about relative energy deficiency syndrome, which is also known as REDS. So mm -hmm. let's dive deep into it right now. Um, first, if you want to explain to our listeners what it actually is, and then if you could touch on some of the health concerns that is that are associated with it. Absolutely, man. So relative energy deficiency in sport, AK REDS, is a syndrome of energy deficiency that can lead to impaired physiological functions, which essentially can affect many downstream, it has many downstream effects on someone's physiology. So that can include uh, downregulating someone's metabolic rate, their menstrual cycle function, their reproductive health, their bone health, their immune system, and actually how their immune system functions, their protein synthesis levels, among many other systems. And REDS is most commonly experienced by both female and male athletes as a result of problematic low energy availability which has been sustained for a long duration or has been really severe in terms of how low their energy availability has been. Now, when it comes to energy availability, this, this is a term that we're going to discuss in detail. So I do want to 
you know, provide a definition for that. And this is essentially the energy we have available after subtracting the energy or the calories that we expend during exercise, as that's the energy that we have available for the body to use towards maintaining normal physiological function, growth, repair, reproduction, and then other physiological processes like the maintenance of our metabolic rate. So this is kind of like an offshoot. We had spoke about the last time I was on the podcast was metabolic adaptation. And this is going to be like a deeper area of metabolic adaptation because there's many commonalities, but there are some deeper physiological ramifications because what we have to do, and I had mentioned this on the last podcast, we have to tease out these concepts. And metabolic adaptation is transient, meaning it's short-term, it's temporary, um, negative adaptations to an energy deficit, whereas REDS is referring to a chronic and prolonged state of relative energy or of low energy availability resulting in relative energy deficiency. Mm -hmm. Now, when someone is experiencing REDS, there's a lot of bodily systems and aspects that are compromised and affected as a result of being an extended or a chronic period of low energy availability that's resulting in energy deficiency. So it's important to realize you can be in low energy availability. Like for instance, we're in low energy availability every single time that we wake up after an overnight fast. So it's really about separating what is called a adaptable low energy availability, which could be in the context of a dieting phase where you periodize periods of being in an energy deficit for the goal of fat loss and then getting out of it to go to a maintenance phase or a refeed or a diet break. And then problematic low energy availability, which is where someone has been in an extended period of time of underfueling. And when someone is in an extended period of time of underfueling, then we see the negative ramifications. So there's, there's essentially two different aspects um, of REDS essentially that can have negative downstream impacts. So we can look at the health effects and then also the potential performance impacts. So from a health perspective, we're going to see impairments in someone's metabolic function, which is going to lower both their basal metabolic rate and their total daily energy expenditure. We're going to see impairments to growth and development, which can limit, you know, their body composition improvement. We're going to see down regulations in endocrine function, which can lead to lower sex hormone levels and thyroid production and or conversion. We're going to see their function of their immune system get downregulated, which you'll often notice with people with reds and especially athletes they're going to be getting sick a lot more uh, common so or a lot more frequently so they're going to have a compromised immune system function we're going to see gastrointestinal issues so a lot of times what i see and what you'll see in the literature is that these individuals will have slower motility or they'll have issues with constipation and and bowel movements and things of that sort we're going to see the most common one is actually really in females, which is a, a disturbance of menstrual cycle function. So this can lead to the disruption of a normal menstrual cycle or even the complete cessation of the menstrual cycle. We're going to see bone health and bone mineral density impacted. Um, we're going to see hematological function, which can often, you know, result in iron deficiency. So this is going to be a commonality on blood work. And then we're also going to see down regulations or impairments in the cardiovascular system, but that's not it, unfortunately. So I, I do want to cover also the performance impacts because a lot of people that I work with, they're very physique and performance oriented. So these are people, they're high achievers, they're, they're go-getters. And so this is really where it kind of keys off where they realize, Hey, I might be suffering with this, or I might be in low energy availability. That's resulting in some of the down regulations I see. So when someone does, you know, is in low energy availability, we can see a ton of performance impacts and, and decrements essentially. So we're going to see decreased muscle protein synthesis levels, which can lead to less, uh, you know, less body composition improvement. And it's also going to result in them having a harder time building and maintaining muscle. And in many cases, you're going to start seeing muscle loss, like precipitous muscle loss, especially when someone has been in this energy deficiency for a long period of time, you're going to see a decrease in their training response, um, their muscular strength, their endurance performance. You're going to see increased injury risk. And especially when we think about one of the health effects, which is low bone mineral density, we actually see that these individuals are more predisposed towards things like stress fractures. 
we're also going to see decreases in coordination, co uh, concentration, cognition, things like that. But also, they're going to see decrements in their training performance. So this is often looked at. What's really interesting is a lot of times people think they're overtrained, but they're actually underfueled. So it's we actually look at research studies. There's this massive um, issue within the literature on overtraining syndrome where they're not, you know, so essentially what you have to do overtraining syndrome to be diagnosed, you would have to have the exclusion of low energy availability. But many of the early studies that actually find overtraining did not look at their nutritional intake. So if you increase in a, even in a randomized control trial, someone's uh, baseline training volume by 50%, but you don't accommodate the increase in their energy intake to accommodate that increase in volume, you've essentially put them in a state of low energy availability. So this is where there's so many different factors that are being confounded. But really when we look at research, um, a lot of times this is more common in females and a lot of the research is more well done in females. So what we see is when we look at the physiological effects of reds on female athletes with energy deficiency, we see that they have decreases in lean body mass, you know, suppression in their estradiol and testosterone levels, reductions in FSH and LH, uh, decreases in things like leptin, IGF-1, um, insulin, T3, uh, increases in fasting, PYY, and ghrelin. So we're going to see increases in hunger hormones. And then also, at times, we can see increases in cortisol and GH resistance. So overall, like the, the whole you know, kind of term explains this energy deficiency is essentially your whole physiology is being impacted by the repercussions or the consequences of being in a very extended period of underfueling yourself or the demands of your training and your life. Because we can't just think about the energy demands of training in and of itself, although that is what the equation alludes to. We also have to think about, we need just baseline energy just to fuel our normal physiological functions, getting up, you know, um, digestion, all these different things, just your day-to-day -day activities. And a lot of times, the reason why this is referred to as relative energy deficiency in sport is because a lot of times with how athletics has become in today's modern era where things are so competitive, it is those individuals that are athletic or very active that are most likely and most predisposed towards underfueling themselves and suffering the ramifications of this syndrome. I was just going to say, um, you know, I know that you've worked with clients with this and, um, and maybe a little later you can touch on your personal experience, but, um, I know in the medical community, um, this is something one that, um, unless you work with young athletes that you may not know about, like a primary care physician, for example, we've all heard on the medical side of the female triad, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we learn about that, um, pretty early on. Um, but reds is, is kind of a new newly coined term, if you will. Um, and I'm wondering when a client comes to you and maybe you suspect this, like what kind of screening um, is available or what kind of screening do you do to kind of tease out whether somebody is actually suffering from, from REDS? Yeah, absolutely. So you, you hit on Aaron perfectly. Um, one of the major limitations of this concept and of this field is that this wasn't even termed or coined until 2014. So actually, if we go back to the female athlete tried, which you alluded to, that was actually initially coined, if I'm correct, 1997 by the ACSM put out a position stand on that. And then they updated in 2007. And so we had this large gap of period of time. I'll tell you personally, I was not formally diagnosed with relative energy efficiency, but I suffered all the consequences of this. But this was 20 years ago. So there wasn't even a term for it. There was no male athlete triad. There was the female athlete triad, but they didn't even think that the, the things that I was suffering from could apply to a male. So I was, you know, I had very low hormone levels. I had, you know, I was losing my hair, downregulation and thyroid production, testosterone production. I had terrible fatigue, um, you know, slow gastric emptying. So like, you know, I couldn't go to the bathroom, things like that. And so 
I suffered all these ramifications, but there wasn't enough information. And so really when it comes down to it, they're still trying to untangle a lot of the symptomology and the real proper screening for this. But really what I look to is there's some common symptoms and habits that could tip someone off to look deeper into whether they may be in low energy availability, which is the underlying cause of red. So a lot of times the diagnosis of reds is very hard to do. And I'll, I'll go through why that is. But a lot of times what we're looking for is let's look for the root cause first. So first and foremost, we have to look for low energy availability. And the most notable symptom and indicator is menstrual cycle disturbances, which can include either oligoamenorrhea, so longer than normal cycles, or amenorrhea, which is the cessation of a menstrual cycle for three months or longer. So this is the primary symptom in females, whereas with males, it would be very low libido and clinically low testosterone. So you're going to have to pull lab work for this. And then, you know, other symptoms are going to, or other habits that you could see within someone, and you could do this within an intake is, has someone been rapidly losing weight, whether that be intentionally or not? Are they suffering from excessive fatigue? Are they becoming frequently ill, especially in comparison to how their immune system was previous to this? Are they having a really difficult time recovering from training? And they're noticing that, you know, if this is an individual out there, like, are you noticing that your performance is consistently decreasing despite the fact that you're putting in a high amount of effort? Like you're doing the same things. You're trying to stay super consistent with your training output, with logging your training, but you just see your loads or even like your runs, your distance, things like that. It just continually decreases. You're seeing performance decrements. And then also another big indicator, and this was my case, this is actually how I, uh, you know, came to be essentially or, or realized that there was something wrong was I was experiencing much more injuries than normal. And luckily I didn't have the actual stress fractures injury, but this is like a big marker for, for those with low energy availability is that you'll notice that there's an increased uh, predisposition towards stress fractures, which come from the lower bone mineral density that is caused by energy deficiency. Now, when it actually comes to screening, there is, this is where there's a lot of work to be done and I'll explain why essentially. So REDS is a condition where the main underlying cause is low energy availability that's sustained over a prolonged period of time that leads to this energy deficient state. Now, energy availability is calculated by taking our dietary energy intake and subtracting energy expenditure just from exercise and then normalizing for our level of fat-free mass. So say someone has 50 kilograms of fat-free mass. Now, first and foremost, we'd have to get them DEXA to know that they have that. So that's the mm -hmm. first limitation in there. But say that we have an accurate you know, body estimation on this athlete. So they have 50 kilograms of fat-free mass. They consume, say, 2,300 calories per day, and they're burning off 300 calories in their training sessions. Then this person would have an energy availability of 40 kcals per kilogram of fat-free mass. So they'd be in a green state, essentially. So they'd be in a good state of energy availability. Now, although there is this technical definition and equation for determining someone's state of energy availability, most of the world's leading experts, and if you look at the consensus statements or even hear them in interviews, they're actually you know, being very open and objective about the fact that even with the advanced amount of technology that they have access to in a lab, that they're actually leaning away from using this equation to determine someone's status of energy availability. And instead, what they're doing is actually what we would do in the real world. And that's looking at someone's symptoms, their habits, their behaviors, and their lifestyle as a better indication of low energy availability and energy efficiency. And this is because unless we have someone in a metabolic ward or they're using doubly labeled water, we can't accurately quantify and measure how many calories they're burning per day solely from exercise. Because you know someone might say, and this is something I've gotten from clients or other coaches, they're like, well, what about my Apple Watch? Well, if you actually look into the activity trackers, I, I did a full podcast on this, but if you actually look at some of the meta-analysis on this, there's one that shows it was a 2019 meta-analysis on six activity trackers. And they found that the estimations in energy expenditure can be any off anywhere between, I believe, 28 to 93%. So that's horrendous. That's getting yes. us nowhere near the ballpark. Margin of and, error is huge. <laughs> exactly. And then the other, the other compounding, so we have to think about compounding error. It's really hard to quantify someone's true level of fat-free mass. 
So where the, the research seems to be heading is that in order to spot low energy availability, we need to look at potential indicators, the client's habits, and their symptoms. So with some of the consensus statements on this topic, they break down the potential indicators up into different brackets. And they start with, it's almost like a hierarchy. So they first have severe primary indicators, which include prolonged secondary amenorrhea, which is defined by the absence of 12 or more consecutive cycles for females. And then for males, it would be clinically low testosterone or you know, either total testosterone or free testosterone in men. Then we have primary indicators, which are a step down, which are gonna include functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, where a woman has essentially lost her cycle anywhere between three or more months and up to 11 months. And then we're going to see subclinical low free or total testosterone in males. We're going to see low thyroid hormone, specifically T3, and then low bone mineral density, which can often lead to stress fractures. So sometimes it is that they're actually looking at a bone mineral density scan, but oftentimes it's that they're actually having athletes come into their practice and they have a stress fracture and that kind of tips them off. Then from there, we have secondary indicators. So we're going down this essentially hierarchy. And with the secondary indicators, this is going to include oligoamenorrhea, which is essentially just elongated cycles. So anything lasting longer than 35 days. And then also they have um, essentially like a cap in there where this would be someone that has a maximum of eight periods per year. So if you have anything less than that, it is still a secondary indicator. Other things that we're looking at is actually your lipid profile, which a lot of people wouldn't expect because when we think about dieting, we think about the fact that we see lower cholesterol levels, but in someone in an energy deficient state, it's a physiological stressor. So we actually see high total cholesterol and high LDL cholesterol. Another big um, you know, factor for this, and this is something I've seen in women that have come to me is uh, uh, bradycardia. So essentially what that is, is like a really abnormally low heart rate. But what's interesting is in the literature, they actually define this as being less than 30 beats per minute, which is, is crazy. Like I've never seen that low, but they actually have to, to do this That's in the sport dead. consensus. <laughs> statement. It, no, exactly. But they actually have to, and they, they have some, you know, in the consensus statements, because the IOC, so the International Olympic Committee has done three consensus statements on relative energy efficiency since 2014. And in their most recent one, they labeled it as that because a lot of athletes are so conditioned that they would they could even easily be misdiagnosed or they could have a primary indicator just due to their level of fitness yeah. that it could get misconstrued essentially. Then what we have to do is we have to take those primary indicators and we have to cross-reference them with the client's habits around training and nutrition. So I'll tell you guys how I do this personally, because this is really where someone like a nutritionist or a dietitian would come into play. So when I'm doing this, what I want to do is I want to find out how often are they training? Are they engaging in high intensity activities each day, like multiple activities? Do they struggle with taking a day off from the gym? And how has their training performance been trending in the gym? Then on the nutrition side, I want to know what's their total calorie intake. So I'm having them do nutritional logs. Um, are they properly fueling themselves around training? I want to know their habits pre-post-workout. I want to know if they're training fasted. Um, I'm also looking at just like some of their eating behaviors. So for instance, if I have someone that they're spending large periods of the day, like I'll have them actually do in my intake form. I want you to do it by time. So, so give me like an allocation, what your schedule looks like. And I'm telling them to jot down their meal times. But if I see that they're going large spans of time throughout the day without eating, or they're using like excessive uh, restrictive patterns. So that could be excessive intermittent fasting or long periods, or if they're completely eliminating certain macronutrients. So they're utilizing a ketogenic diet approach, but they're trying to optimize training performance. It's kind of like a, a tip off in my direction that something's going on. So really what I do Quick is question, when I, just mm -hmm. based on that, just talking about eating habits, it sounds, I mean, to me as a clinician, it's very difficult to distinct, first off, it's very difficult diagnosis, right? Without Absolutely. looking at the entire picture, but you're alluding to something that I think is so important right here. Uh, and you're talking about eating habits. How do you distinguish between disordered eating? Like do the, do these people just have 
um, you know, an eating disorder versus mm -hmm. the entire, um, you know, symptomology of breads. And given that component, it sounds like there's a psychological issue as well. So maybe you can touch on that when you have them track with their, their calories. Like, how do you know that they just don't have an eating disorder? Absolutely. So um, this really comes down to practitioner experience, but then also I've looked into the literature on this and, and also have to be very transparent. If there's ever a moment within a consultation or within an onboarding process that I feel uncomfortable in the direction we're going, my first primary um, priority is to do no harm. So if I ever feel that I'm out of like out of my water, I have no, uh, I have no hesitation. It's no ego. It's no issue for me to say, listen, I think this is outside of my scope. I think what you're dealing with is something I need to refer out, and and that's where I would do that. But really, with I, I try to divide this up, like, and I'll I'll explain why. Like within my initial consultation, I do go over a client's like relationship with food, and I ask them a lot about their habits and behaviors around food, as well as if they have had an, uh, like a history of an eating disorder, because that's what's going to predispose them towards having disordered eating habits in the future. So if they already have a diagnosis, then it's tipping me off. This could be actually a, a key underlying issue. And if there are someone that has an, a diagnosed eating disorder, like currently, such as anorexia or bulimia, I'll refer them out because that's just outside of my scope. And I, I do, I'm very honest and transparent. And I let them know that I'm not comfortable with working with them, which I think more coaches need to get better at doing. A lot of times we take people on and it's it's not within our wheelhouse. And we have to realize that. And, and I'm a nutritionist by trade. So it's it's not the psychological aspect. Yes, I consider my client, client psychology, but if it is something that makes me feel uncomfortable, I know to follow my gut. And so, you know, I, I Believe me, when I say like, I want to help as many people as possible, but I also know my area of expertise. And I think it's really important to do so. And I also know what's outside of my scope of practice as a nutritionist. So if I ever, like I mentioned, if I ever feel uncomfortable taking on a client, I let them know this and I refer them out as the, my first priority is to do no harm. And that requires being extremely honest and working with those that I can best suit with the skill set that I have. So we also, and, and this is actually a confusion because if you actually look at some of the, and this is actually... You know, you kind of wish sometimes you go back into the literature and they could revise some of their statements because initially when they came out with the female athlete triad, they actually included disordered eating in there. And if you actually look at the updated consensus statement, which a lot of people don't, it actually removes disordered eating and it puts in low energy availability instead. And it can be with and without eating disorders. And a lot of times what we need to do is realize that when someone has an eating disorder, it's actually completely separately diagnosed. So REDS and, and they, they have essentially separated them at this point. So we need to separate eating disorders and REDS as both are diagnosed differently. So although they may have some overlap, eating disorders have a more formal diagnosis criteria, which is under the DSM-5. And then also we have to consider the fact that there are multiple forms and, and uh, essentially types of REDS. So there's involuntary and voluntary REDS. Where involuntary REDS, which is a lot of what I experience and what I uh, encounter, that's a form of REDS that happens unintentionally just due to a lack of either nutritional literacy or lack of awareness around how much energy a person needs. So they unintentionally underfuel themselves. And this can be a case in which an individual follows like a fad diet because they heard a lot of good things about it or they saw something on social media. So what they end up doing is they saw their favorite influencer got super lean following a ketogenic diet. So now they cut out an entire macronutrient group and they've completely restricted their carb intake, which actually increases their disposition towards developing REDS. On the other side of things, we do have voluntary REDS, which is generally what they, this is labeled as or as identified as is where an athlete is specifically and intentionally restricting their energy intake for chronic periods of time, trying to enhance their performance. So a lot of times we see this in weight class athletes, which they think lighter is better. There's like this correlation between the two, which 
often is a fallacy, but you know, unfortunately what ends up happening is a lot of times these individuals will see performance increase because like the power to rate ratio mm -hmm. and they get away with it at first. And then it, it just all goes downhill from there. But I often encounter clients who either, you know, they have landed in low energy availability, but it's due to not having like a high nutritional IQ or receiving proper guidance in terms of the diet and training. So these are clients which I really work to empower through education and work with them on shifting their approach to nutrition and fueling themselves so they stop under eating and over restricting. Because what I notice a lot of people do is even those, so I'll be honest with you guys, I'm never like someone's first coach. Like I, I'm usually not the beginner coach. I'm someone like I'm rectifying things that people have done in the past. And unfortunately with our industry, and we've discussed this, you know, off air that it's really saturated at this point, but it's not saturated with great people. It's not saturated with high quality yeah. individuals. And there's a lot of people that shouldn't be doing nutritional counseling at all, to be honest with you. And this is not to hate on anyone else. I won't specifically call anyone out or any groups or you know organizations, but there's a lot of people that take on a clientele that they have no business working with. And that is a disservice to those individuals. So there's a lot of times that I'm going through an intake and I realize, wow, this person has been horribly misinformed by their previous, you know, they wanted them to do a ketogenic fasting approach where they're doing a five, two diet and they're skipping, you know, their water fasting two days per week to try to, you know, boost autophagy and, and bullshit. And it's like, you know, they're, they're getting these mis, you know, um, misinformation essentially. And they've been led into relative energy efficiency or low energy availability without even realizing it because they're just following the quote unquote protocol. And that's not on them. And also, I think we really have to give grace to a lot of these people in the general population. Think about where we're coming from. And a lot of times you hear information, it might be someone that is truly charming, like in the way they deliver information, you say, that sounds really good. And I'm someone with an education in nutrition and we've all been there. Like we're all very educated. And there's times that you hear someone, you said, if I didn't have the education that I had and the experience that I had, I would have fallen for that too. And I don't blame them at all. So I, I really do try to... Um, really give people grace in terms of their knowledge, where they're at. And I always try to take in consideration, I need to better my client's education, those that come to me, because they might have been misinformed in the past. And it's not their job to know nutrition as well as a professional does. So if someone has taken advantage of them and given them poor information and has led them astray, and they've landed in this low energy availability state where someone has utilized them and essentially given them this cookie cutter protocol that has landed them with mental cycle dysfunction or a loss of their mental cycle to get them lean for a 12 week transformation. It's like, that's not on that person. That's on the coach that that led you in that state. You know, it's interesting because um, you said the caveat of maybe not having the knowledge, but even um, I'll speak to my own experience. I became a bikini competitor after I was a physician and I had the female triad. And mm -hmm. I was like, damn, um, I have dieted down and I am tired and I was getting injured more often. And, um, you know, I knew what it was. Yet I still thought I need to follow what this coach is telling me, right? Because I need to hit the stage. So I think even if you're educated, you kind of get in this realm of, you know, maybe in your sport or in the competition thinking this is the right way. This is the only way. And I think um, it's so important to be educated, especially when it comes to your health. Um, because like you said, some of um, these coaches may be giving out misinformation and that really does have an effect on the people that they are training it definitely i had lost my period for two years um and it took me a long time to recover absolutely no you're 100 spot on and you're someone that's incredibly intelligent so we can't disregard the fact that you are at an intellect level that many people are never going to get to and you still you know, yeah. you were trying to, and, and it's like, honestly, we come from the contest prep realm. I did 15 preps. I'll be honest with you. There was many times that I, 
um, hindered my health progression as a result of following a coach. And I knew better. And mm -hmm. it was just, listen, I need to shut up. I need to follow the plan. This is right. what he's saying that I need to do to get to nationals. And so I followed exactly. it to the decrement of my own health yeah. and they didn't care about me. And I realized that, and sometimes you have to look back and oftentimes how I approach coaching now is I want to rectify or, or do things in a different way so that I can rectify the mistakes I made in the past that I was misled in doing. And I always, I never want a client that I work with to have the same experience that I did to go through the same ramifications or the same consequences that I did. So really what I try to do with my coaching practice. And often if you guys hear my podcast, like I'll talk about my own mistakes or like the negative, you know, physiological situations that I've been in from contest preps or diets, or even my childhood, you know, in competitive sports. And it's like, I want you guys to learn because not only did I suffer from this physically and mentally, but I also took an immense amount of time to dive into literature to understand because there was no one there to educate me. So right. it was on me to realize what is the, what are these issues that I went through in my childhood that have shaped some of my thoughts around food or my approach to, to training and nutrition. And to really educate myself to a level where I'm better able to understand, but I'm also able to help other people avoid the mistakes of my past. Yeah. So, so let's, let's do this. Let's educate our listeners right now. Um, Cause you mentioned blood work before. So why don't you dive into a little bit of like what you're actually, if you're looking and doing the lab analysis, or if you're sending it out, what are they looking for in terms of like, what are you measuring? And then what do you see? And also two pronged here. Um, do you actually look at cortisol levels because of the increased amount of stress that that, that has on the body? Yeah. So when it comes to labs, I do run lab work with my clients and I generally, I work off of essentially a hierarchy of importance that's based on reliability and then accessibility, which is really important to me because I, I do have to make the caveat that I work with people all around the world. So I work with as many clients actually in Australia and Canada as I do in America. So mm -hmm. we have to take into consideration the access that other countries have to blood work and to lab work are much different than we do in the States where we're able to go, you know, a lot of people are going to like, you know, clinics and, and being able to get extensive lab work. So what I like to do is I like to start off with a CBC and a CMP profile, a lipid profile. And I'm also looking at like their liver and their kidney values. And then I, you know, I'm, another one of the basics essentially is, you know, indicators of insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance, uh, which is going to include HbA1c and then their fasting insulin. So those are what I consider the basics and the foundation to lab work, which I like to run with all of my clients. So this is like the fundamental bare basics that I run with every. Then if I have a client who comes to me who I suspect has been in a state of low energy availability or has been underfueling themselves based on their dietary habits, their biofeedback, their symptoms, and then also the consultation, like I get very open and honest with individuals. I share about my own experiences, but I also get them to share about theirs. So if I have a, you know any suspicion, then I'm pulling other labs. So that's where I'm looking to get a full sex hormone profile and thyroid uh, profile pulled. So I'm going to be looking to pull labs like your testosterone, your estrogen, um, your progesterone on a full thyroid panel. So T4, T3, uh, free T4, uh, free T3, and then also TSH. And then now when it comes to what I've seen, and then also I, I want to, because obviously there's always like these rare cases. So I also want to reinforce this. I know you guys really like, you know, your evidence and stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a review on this one so that we can elucidate everything that I've seen and then also what the literature sees. So when it comes to um, what I've seen, then also what the evidence and what the literature sees in terms of the endocrine effects and hormonal changes caused by relative energy deficiency, there's a great review done. And it's by a doctor out in, I believe she's in the UK named Dr. Ella, Kirsty Ellis. At sale, I believe. And she was looking at the endocrine effects of REDS, which has, you know, she found that many hormones are impacted by REDS. So when it comes to sex hormones in the HPG axis, we see testosterone is reduced in both males and females, estradiols decrease in both males and females. And then specifically for women, we see progesterone being substantially reduced. Then when it comes to a thyroid panel and our thyroid hormones, we see things like T3, 
free T3, T4, and free T4 go down in both females and males. Whereas the interesting thing is TSH will generally stay within range. So it's going to stay low. So it's not going to flag up. So if you were only to get a regular profile and you didn't get a full thyroid profile, you may look, you may overlook that essentially. Then these are not labs that I'm often getting tested, but you will see if you do get more comprehensive testing, depending on what area you're in, you will see leptin go down substantially and you'll see IGF go down in both males and females. And so those are some of the key indicators we will see when running labs on clients. Now, this was a really interesting uh, question that you guys had about the cortisol, because this is something I've went back and forth with myself about cortisol testing. Um, and I might look at it a little bit differently than you guys. In the literature, it's actually very interesting because they rarely test cortisol. And there are some reviews that show that cortisol, like if you actually look at like the narrative reviews and you look at how many how many um, studies that they looked on relative energy deficiency and how many actually tested for cortisol, it's a very small minority. And that's honestly kind of shaped the direction I went in. Um, I will say that I do test cortisol at times, but it's not only in the in the context of just relative energy deficiency or low energy availability. Um, sometimes I will get it on like a, a serum lab, and I understand that some people aren't in agreement with that. But um, you know, I'm not really into, and I'm not really on board with the extensive cortisol testing that I see many in like the functional space utilizing currently. Just to be honest with you guys, and I'm going to speak on my own opinions, and, and then no, you guys I can give me your feedback. <laughs> no, so so I, I just want to be transparent about this, and this was something that I had to kind of check myself a couple years ago about, and I'm going to go through some of the literature because I remember. I want to say 2018, 2019, to be honest with you guys, I'm at a, uh, a functional nutrition seminar and I hear them talking about the Dutch tests and about, you know, ZRT and things. And they're, you know, giving me the information about them. And I'm looking at the literature reviews that they're pulling up and I'm actually ch checking them on my phone and it just, it, they weren't matching two and two, like what they were saying that the literature reviews actually said about them. And then what I was actually seeing in the actual full articles. So essentially, you know, I know that a lot of, you know, practitioners in our space are really hot on Dutch testing right now, but honestly, we don't, you know, we have the most data on serum labs and they're the yeah. easiest and most accessible labs for all my clients to get around the world. So first and foremost, that's always my main area of focus in terms of lab-based data interpretation. Also with things like Dutch and other advanced testing methods, they're really, you know, they're quite expensive regardless of where you go. And I'm always trying to meet my clients where they're at from a budgeting perspective. So I think from a coaching, like this is the real world, this isn't in a research lab, like we have to take into consideration, what can this person afford? So I don't find myself employing them often. And then another thing that I do want to hit on is I know a lot of coaches run salivary cortisol, but personally, that's just not something that I've found and I, I've done in my own coaching practice too frequently. And I find that in the last few years, things like Functional medicine and integrative medicine have started to influence coaching practices, but personally, I, I really haven't seen a ton of efficacy in those methods that are being integrated by a lot of you know, new coaches in the space. And if I'm going to run a test or a lab with a client, I want to make sure that test is validated and accurate. And with cortisol testing, there's been some like data that I've read that has indicated that they're not highly accurate. So a lot of the research that we actually have on cortisol testing, especially salivary cortisol testing, finds that there's inaccuracy seen in both the um, uh, cortisol awakening response and then the day-to-day -day cortisol variation. So I actually pulled some studies for you guys so we can go over this. Just, you know, I wanna be able to present my case and, and then get your guys' feedback 100% because no, this awesome. is something, yeah. yeah, no, this is something that, Honestly, a lot of my friends in this space, they don't agree with me with, and we don't need to all agree because we all have our own coaching practices, but there's a lot of times I'm like, you know, we, should, we can all have our opinions, <laughs> but I'm going to hit you with the evidence. So here well, we real, go. Real quick though, before you dive into the evidence, mm -hmm. um, if you haven't listened to our episode 11 uh, with uh, Hormones Demystified, you should listen to that because it goes into all of this type of stuff too. Um, yeah. I'm and just going to say, I'm a big, um, probably uh, naysayer. For integrative functional medicine 
um, just because there's no, there's no evidence to back it up. And so, um, you know, maybe one day, right. But not, not right now. Yeah. And so when you're, so I guess a lot of what you're saying is actually resonating with me without even you bringing the, the literature to the table. I know the literature's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in clinical practice, you know, I only do labs that are going to be certified. Right. And so Dutch Absolutely. testing that's is our urinary the- or urinary metabolites. That's not how you measure, um, a lot of what they are measuring and, and really you can't do a lab test without verified data. And I think there's just not that data there in order to say this is a normal range and this is an abnormal range. It's just not there. Yeah, it's not certified, right? The, it is. The so it, these aren't validated tests, that is ERT. And that's kind of my issue with things. And I wanna make this very clear to everyone out in the audience and even to you guys. I'm very open-minded to things, but I'm not so open-minded that I let my brain fall out. And really what it comes <laughs> down to is that I am willing to accept new evidence and that can change my interpretation of things. But right and now, course. where the body of evidence stands, it is not in favor of cortisol testing or especially salivary cortisol testing or any of these advanced testing. And I think a lot of times it's sold as like this sexy solution. Like I can interpret these advanced labs. And don't get me wrong, guys, I've done classes. I know how to interpret the Dutch, but do I find utility in my day-to-day practice? I don't. And I'm going to tell you 10 out of 10 times, I always go back to serum labs. We have a hundred years of accurate data on serum labs. I can get that anywhere around the world. It's not a, a big effort barrier in terms of cost, availability, accessibility. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's substantiated in, I mean, hundreds of, of studies. So if we actually look at it, and I'm going to go through with you guys, just so the audience out there knows, because this is another thing I'm really big into. I don't want to say dispelling myths, but providing clarity on complex topics. And a lot of times I do have clients that come to me and they want to get these tests because their their previous coach had sold them into, you know, you need to get these tests. You always have to get a Dutch if you want to, you know, uh, measure, you know, correct cortisol elevations, or you need to get a ZRT, or you need to get your estrogen metabolites and things of that sort. They also got to so, use their code to order the test so they get some commission. <laughs> that is very true. But they come to me and they ask these things. And so really what I try to do is first and foremost, I want to be able to minimize the amount of extra and additional costs that these people have. Keep in mind, like we have an economy that isn't going too well right now. I'm always thinking about food costs for clients and accept, you know, extra costs. And it's like, is this necessary? That's always my first thing. First and foremost, I always try to think about their life and realize that fitness isn't their life. It's a component of their life. So adding another $500 lab, is this going to be conducive? If it's necessary, by all means, I I have no issue having that conversation with a client. But when I go back to the evidence, we have multiple reviews that find this. So for instance, in a 2009 review by Adams and colleagues, they pointed out that gathering data on only one day rather than multiple days has implications for the reliability of measurement of the cortisol measures, which can impact what we can take away from these tests. So we also have to think and, and consider the fact that every single day that you go into a lab, you're, it's not going to be the same, especially when it comes to cortisol testing. And there are yeah. so many factors so that a lot of people- And that's what we're going to go through. So what people don't realize how many different factors can actually transiently or in the moment impact cortisol values, including how you slept the night before in terms of the night before testing in terms of your quantity and quality of sleep, your time of waking, whether you're testing on the weekend, they've actually done studies on this. Is it on the weekend when you're off from work or is it during the week when you actually have work? your perceived stress levels, your prior day experiences. So a single day's cortisol measure isn't accurate enough to really you know, tangibly use to steer and influence what we do with a client. So if you have someone that's utilizing a one day cortisol test and then prescribing all these medications and these supplements and stuff, 
that's probably inaccurate because we really don't know. But then if we actually go to more of the evidence looking at longer term uh, measurements of cortisol, then we see where there's really you know, issues due to variability, like you mentioned, Aaron. So for instance, there's a study by Elder in 2016 where they took a group of healthy individuals who were normal sleepers and they had them stay in a sleep lab for three days. And on three consecutive mornings, they measured their cortisol levels at 0, 15, 30, 45, and 60 minutes after waking. Now, what's interesting is they not only monitored their cortisol levels, but they also monitored their sleep via polysomnography. So they knew their sleep quality. And what they did was they had them in a very tightly controlled environment and tried to make sure that they equated their sleep quality each and every night. Yet, they still found that awakening cortisol levels and the magnitude of increase show daily variations and are potentially sensitive to differences in daily activities. So the issue is when we're looking to test lab values, we want something that's accurate and reliable so that we can look for trends and patterns across values. But with cortisol testing, this generally isn't possible. Then we also see that even over longer timescales, there's a massive variability in these tests, which was found in a 2009 study where they took a group of office workers and tested their cortisol levels upon wake, 15 minutes after waking up, and at bed every day for four weeks, so 28 days of testing. And they found a massive variation, not only between participants, but within individual participants. And so, for example, the mean value of all participants awakening cortisol level was 12.8, but the average minimum value was 4.5, and the average maximum value was 25. So if we look at the spread, the average was 12.8, but the spread was some days it was 4.5 and some days it was 25.3. And then another example of the study, and I actually pulled this, was this was a, a single participant. He was labeled participant number one, and he had a mean cortisol value of eight, but he had a minimum reading of um, 1.4 within that four-week span, and then a maximum reading of 22. So we see that there's a massive variability, and we have to consider the fact that with this type of large variability, especially day-to-day, it's hard for me to be assured that if I do test cortisol utilizing one of these methods and I have a client test this, that we actually, the, the value that I get back is an actually indicative of their actual average cortisol level on a day-to-day -day basis. So despite the fact that cortisol levels due to stress being, in, uh, stress being induced by energy deficiency, it is a marker. There are many other markers that I could use to get a better evaluation on that person's actual status of energy availability than utilizing some of these offshoot tests. So I don't mind like having a cortisol value on a serum lab test, but I'm not going out of my way to order a three, four, $500 test in addition to what I'm doing with blood labs. Yeah, no, that's, that. yeah, without a doubt, because, like you said, you got to take into account their lifestyle. And honestly, it's hard enough for them to follow a diet and push themselves to go to the gym. And now you're adding a stress of, of money on top of that with trying to order these labs and stuff. So now nah, it's a beautiful thing that you're doing that. Um, and I know, uh, you know, you got a bunch of things to do today. Um, I don't want to wrap this up just as there's a few more questions. Um, so we could really educate our listeners, but um, two prong here, once again, so when dealing with reds, like, are there any prevention methods and what are the basic protocols you would provide or you think are, are necessary for, um, for recovery from reds? So mm -hmm. prevention and then recovery when you have it. You got it, my man. So I think really when it comes to prevention, I think the best, honestly, and I know this is kind of cliche to say, but the best statement that can be applied to low energy availability is that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So the best prevention method I've found is to Love educate that. my clients about the importance of fueling themselves properly and working on shifting them out of a mindset of restriction and subtraction and into a mindset of abundance and addition. So my goal with every single client that I take on or every Zoom consultation I do, or even like being on this podcast, is really to be able to empower others with education and to bring awareness to topics that many within our industry are either unaware of or they neglect to touch on. And this is a great example of that. So the issue is that 
many look at nutrition in this restriction and subtraction based mindset where they only focus on like nutrition or their diet when they want to lose body fat and body weight. And this leads them to bounce between extremes of overeating to undereating, which negatively impacts their body composition outcomes, their biofeedback and their health. And so really when it comes down to it, what I try to really focus on with my clients to prevent this. So as a prevention method is essentially to utilize nutritional periodization where I periodize their nutrition and training phases in a manner where we will focus on a specific goal for a period of time, but we will also transition to other phases that will promote recovery from that last phase. So this can look like a very classic periodization model that I utilize with my clients is I'll first start them off with a pre-diet or pre-fat loss primer phase, and I'm going to prime them to be in a good place to go into a fat loss phase. Then once they've finished their fat loss phase and they've lost a significant amount of body fat, I'm then going to transition them into a post-diet, whether that be a post-diet phase, that could be a recovery phase, that could be a reverse diet phase, that could be a maintenance phase. And so what we're really trying to do during that period of time is we've already induced the energy deficit. We've gotten the body composition progress that we've wanted. We've lost a significant amount of body fat, but for every gimme, there's a gotcha. So we've we've incurred some metabolic adaptations. So this is where during that recovery phase, we work on reversing the metabolic adaptation sustained during that diet while also working on another goal. So another great goal to do that is to transition out of trying to be a leaner, smaller version of yourself into focused on focusing on building muscle and becoming a stronger version of themselves rather than doing what most do in the general population, which is they try to perpetually diet their way to a better physique. Now, when it comes to recovery from reds, there's multiple things that we can do, but I'm really going to take it from a nutritional perspective because I think that's what's going to benefit your audience most. So we have to realize that the recovery from reds is a multifactorial um situation essentially. So I try to address it in various ways to be able to address the root cause, which is insufficient energy intake for a client's level of exercise energy expenditure. So I kind of have a checklist that I usually go through in terms of goals and priorities for addressing these issues. So first, I need to increase their energy availability and improve their fueling capacity or even just their approach to fueling. Next, I'm going to dial in their nutrient timing and make sure they avoid any long gaps without eating. So we're not looking at, you know, fasted training or any of these sexy, like, you know, different protocols of fasting for this amount of hours or water fasting on Saturdays or whatever it may be. And then oftentimes I'm going to lower their high intensity exhausted exercise and cut out some things like high intensity interval training, or even like the boot camp classes that they're doing on the side. And then often I find that many are training facets. So I'm going to shift them from going into training sessions facet to utilizing a peri-workout nutrition strategy where we feel properly for the workouts they're doing. So I'll go through kind of like the main things that we're going to utilize and the best and most effective strategies that I found in practice, but then also they're reinforced by the literature. So seeing as the main underlying cause of REDS is low energy availability, the first line strategy for the recovery of REDS is to correct the energy deficiency nutritionally by increasing a client's energy availability so that they're back in a state of sufficient energy availability. And this is something that needs to be done for an extended period of time. So it's not just getting back to maintenance for a week or two. Like we have to stay here for a substantial period of time. So what I like to do is when I have a client who's been in low energy availability and they come to me in this state, I'll look to bring them back up to their predicted maintenance. And then what I do is I'll track their body weight to ensure it isn't continuing to drop. Because a lot of times, despite the fact that we may tell a client to eat more, we need to track some of the physiological uh, outcomes of that. If they're starting to lose weight still, we know that they're still in an energy deficit. So we have to really have a check and balance process essentially. So what I'm doing is I'm not only monitoring their body weight, but I'm also monitoring their, uh, their biofeedback in terms of how they're feeling, how their energy levels are, their mm -hmm. sleep their performance in the gym, which often, if we think about it, these things should all be improving because many times when someone comes to you in a state of low energy availability, all those metrics are in the gutter. So really I'm trying to improve those areas of biofeedback so they buy into the process. 
And many of the women that I've worked with who have been in low energy availability have experienced either oligoamenorrhea or amenorrhea. So one of my goals is to restore their menstrual cycle back to a normal, like 21 to 35 day cycle. Yeah. But with most, like with both men and women, I'll often continue to increase their energy intake slowly while monitoring their improvements in biofeedback. And during that time, it's really about focusing on habit change and behavior modification because many have landed in this state of low energy availability as a result of either neglecting the importance of nutrition and the need to fuel themselves or they've been excessively restrictive with themselves. So we need to you, really work on those things. Yeah. Do you get a lot of pushback though? Like when someone comes to you and is like, Hey, I want to change my body composition. You're like, listen, we got to feed you up for a while. Cause I know with my experience, yeah, there's a, there's a ton of pushback, but it's about like trusting the process and going through it. And, and so what's your, what's your experience with that? You know what? It's really interesting because at this point in my career, I have to say that I rarely find a new client who comes to me and essentially isn't willing to make a change. And the reason is because in my initial consultation, I take a very long time to bring someone on board when I, mm -hmm. I suspect this. So there is a large period of time where we're on, on calls and we're building a relationship and we're having an open dialogue. And often since day one, when I'm getting their intake, I'm making it very apparent that what they're doing hasn't been working and they need to do something different and take yep. a modified approach to be able to dig themselves out of the hole that they've been in. And a lot of, here, here's the other caveat to that is a lot of the individuals who contact me for coaching have already worked with multiple coaches prior to me. And the reason they're seeking me out is to improve upon the approach they've taken in the past. And also yeah. because they've been in the state where they've been essentially in this vicious cycle of chronic dieting, where they not only feel like shit, but their body is stopped, they're starting to not respond to the deficit like it used to. So despite the fact that they want to try to diet for fat loss, oftentimes when they, you know, we do a consultation, I make it very apparent off the bat and I put together a plan of action where I'm like, listen, I'm very upfront. I'm very apparent. You know, we need to get you out of a state of underfueling yourselves and really get you to increase your energy intake so that we can see an improvement in your biofeedback and really get your body to start responding. And this isn't to say, like, I'll be completely honest with you. There's many times that this is a difficult process for these individuals. And I wouldn't say this is ever an easy process for clients, but I always aim to meet them where they're at and walk mm -hmm. them through the process. But if I did, if I did get a new client who was literally in complete denial that they were suffering from low energy availability or they were in reds and they came to me looking to continue to diet because this is often the case. The thing is, I wouldn't take them on. And I'm very transparent and very honest about these with these individuals. I'm not going to put my main goal when I take someone on that's new is to put them into a position to succeed. And if they want to start off our working relationship, going back into a diet, which has led to all the Mm -hmm. negative physiological implications that they're suffering from, I'm not going to do that because that's not what's in their best interest. And I'm very transparent and I'm very open and honest. I'll be on the phone with them or on a Skype call or on a Zoom call. And I will literally, you know, plead with them to, to realize that this is not doing them any, any good, whether they, they work with me or not. Dieting and continuing to do what they've been doing that has led them to the state that they're in and the hole that they're in is not going to is, is not going to put themselves in an advantageous position to get where they want to be. So a lot of times, you know, this is really convincing people to realize they need to spend a portion of time away from dieting to be able to reverse the negative adaptations that they've sustained from trying to constantly eat less and exercise more. And it's really shifting their mindset. And that's a big thing that I work on with clients is trying to shift them out of that mindset of restriction and into one of abundance. And yes, it is a process, but it isn't like, you know, a lot of times there's also buy-in because we've had, we've created a relationship. We've had a lot of talks. I've been able to explain both scientifically and then also from my own experience, how many times that I've seen this and what we've had to do to reverse this process. I'm able to send them multiple podcasts that I've done on this topic. And a lot of times they, they, you know, reach back out to me and they're like, listen, 
I'm suffering with almost every single thing that you described in this podcast. And it's yeah. like, it's an eye-opening moment for them. So there's a lot of buy-in, there's a lot of connection, but also when I notice that someone has been in low energy availability, this is a kind of like a trickled process. So it isn't something that we're diving all in. I'm not the coach and I'll be transparent about this. I'm not the person that as soon as I get an intake, someone's interested in working with me and I just sign them. It's like, listen, I want to get to know you. I want to make sure that we're a proper fit because I'm the person that will literally, and I've done this before where I have been in the process of creating a program and I'm going back and forth with the client and, you know, we jump on an additional call and then I realize we're not a good fit. This person, they said that they were bought into the process and they were willing to try something different, to go into a primer phase, to finally feed themselves up, to finally give them, you know, I always tell clients and I, I do this very often. I say this expression is you need to give your body what it needs so your body can do what you want it to do. And so it's really, it's really satisfying our physiological needs so that you can upregulate all the internal systems that have been downregulated and so that you can feel better, function better, and eventually look better. And they yeah. all, they all tie into together. And sometimes there are individuals and that they're seem on board at first, and then they, they hesitate, or then they, you know, jump off the ship. And it's like, listen, I want to guide you. And it's not that it's my way or the highway, but you're putting yourself in the same position that you have been. And I can't. I can't be a bystander in this process as a coach. So if you want me to educate you, you want me to take you through a process to reverse what you're suffering from, I'm your guy. I will help you to the nth degree and will walk you through a process and hold your hand. But if you're unwilling to even give it a try, we're not a good match and, and a refund will be will be heading your way. Yeah, yeah, no. And and that's very respectable, honestly. Because uh, you take a, you look at a lot of coaches, they'll just take anybody on because it's money coming in their in their, in their pocket um, instead of, and they compromise the health. And it's funny because like, you're saying uh, that you got to be able to um, feed your body to bring it to where you want it to go. And normally what I say, like when I have a situation like this is like, we got to not diet in order for you to diet, right? We got to give you that time. Stop dieting 100%. right now. Let's feed you up. Let's put you, you call it a primer phase. It's a beautiful name for it. Let's feed you up. I call it metabolic capacity, trying to increase how much food you can, you can handle uh, per day right? Let's feed you up. Let's get you ready. So then we can diet down. Let's fill your cup up with water. So then we could pour some out when we go through our dieting phase again. 100%. And yeah, a lot of people, especially with the psychology, like I know I have a few clients right now that are for it. And, but there's, you still got to like talk them off the ledge a couple of weeks where they have hard weeks of like, man, like I feel like I'm gaining a little bit of fat. And so you gotta, Hey, it's worth it for now. So you can listen, you gotta do the shit now. So in the future, you can look like what you want to look like. Um, so there's a lot of that that come into play. But this is in all things in life. So for instance, if we were, and, and I have a million analogies for this, to be honest with you, but mm -hmm. if we were to go on a road trip, we would fill up our tank, correct? We would want, mm -hmm. you know, you want to have enough fuel to be able to provide us with safety and a, a way to get from A to B. If you were to have an investment, you wouldn't expect that you put, you know, something into the stock market and you get a return on investment automatically. You yeah. want a great return on investment. And a lot of things in life, it is about foregoing instant gratification and looking towards um, you know, gratification in the long term and really being able to delay gratification so that we can get a better return on our investment later on. So really, and all things in life, they're worth the wait when you really put time and energy and effort into it. And with the primer phase, I really try to, you know, I have this broad-based philosophy of nutritional periodization where we essentially go through phasic periods of different goals that offset the physiological ramifications of another. So 
with that, what I'm trying to do is with say a, a pre-fat loss primer phase, I'm trying to potentiate that next phase. I'm trying to get that person to not only physically get into a state of abundance in terms of energy intake. So we have the biggest calorie budget they can play with. I'm trying to, you know, expand their maintenance calorie intake. So we have somewhere to cut from because as with, you know, a great analogy is a monetary budget. If you're broke, you got nothing to pull from to pay your bills or anything yeah. else. And so if you are someone that's on very low calories when you come to me and you just continue cutting, 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 and you just want to continue restricting your intake and, and you might not realize this, but you're down-regulating your energy expenditure with these metabolic adaptations that we covered in the last podcast. Where are we going to pull from from that? If exactly. you're not losing weight at a very, very low intake and you also can't sustain it and you are that person that Monday through Friday, you're on the diet, but you're really just like hanging on by like just a last inch, like you're, you're really, um, you know, gripping the wheel essentially. And then- on Saturday and Sunday, you can hardly sustain your plan because you're just so ravenous and you're just so mentally broke from the process of being physically and mentally restricted from an energy intake perspective. Where's that going to lead you in a 12 or 16 week fat loss days if we continue this? That's yeah. getting you nowhere. You know, you're just continuing to spin your wheels and stay in the same place. Let's take a step back and really look at a way to expedite your progress in the future. And the best way to do that is to do something different, to get you eating more, to get to be able to expand your maintenance calorie or your maintenance calorie intake, to get you into a state of proper energy availability, fuel your training for once. So you feel great in the gym. You feel great out of the gym. We upregulate your knee because now you have more energy day to day. So you're less likely to be, you know, slouched over on the couch or feeling like just ass at all times. And then once you're in a much better position, the thing is that a diet is a, tr a temporary phase. So we can do this at any time, but here's the thing. If you diet now, when you're not ready, you're not going to get the results you're looking for. However, if we put in the, the work right now for 12 or 16 weeks, we could put you in such a better place that you will be, you know, in, in six months, way ahead of where you would have ever been, even if you stayed in a dieted state for the next six months. So it's like, mm -hmm. you have to really think about the long-term and stop thinking in these, you know, unfortunately what our fitness industry has, has led a lot of people to is to only think in like four or six or eight week increments. Like I'm going to get results overnight. There's these 30 day challenges or 28 day detoxes. And that's not realistic. A lot of this takes time. It takes time to change your habits. It takes time to see actual upregulations, like all these things, like, you know, mental cycle restoration that takes months, like months. And so what a lot of people don't realize is if you keep going back to the same tool, it's going to stop working. And especially from an energy deficit perspective and a low energy availability perspective, the deeper you dig yourself, the longer it's going to take to get out. And I really agree. wish people would think long-term. Yeah, agree. And this is probably very personal, but um, you mentioned that you weren't formally diagnosed with REDS, but you struggled with some of um, the symptomology. Can you talk Absolutely. about how you personally recovered? I think this is something mm -hmm. that athletes really don't talk about. Like I know yeah. with some of our clients, um, I'm able to relate because I went through something similar and I think it needs to be talked about more. Um, this is very common, especially in bodybuilding, um, in the sport that we all do. So, um, can you touch on how, what your recovery process was like? 100%. So this isn't something I, I get to talk about too often, but it is something that actually got me into nutrition. So this was the impetus for all this. Um, this has sparked off an intellectual curiosity as well as a, a physical passion for, for weight training and then also the nutrition side of things. So when I was growing up, I was very involved in weight restricted sports. So I did um, MMA, I did uh, karate, you know, take on dope uh, competitions. And I also did long distance running. So cross country and track. And I was quite good you know, early on. And so I had a lot of coaches that kind of took me under their wing and I was just following their lead. And a lot of times they'd make comments to me because I was a taller individual that I needed to reduce my body weight. And that if I stayed lighter, I would be faster. So it was that whole, 
you know, weight power to weight ratio type of perspective. And so it got to the point where I was, and now this is way before, I mean, we're talking 2002 to 2004. So this is more than 20 years ago. There was no MyFitnessPal or anything, but I got into some disordered eating habits where I was tracking every calorie that I ate. I was excessively restricting myself, running for hours on end. And I was essentially training between both running, you know, cross country and track, and then also karate at night. I was training three to four hours a day. I got into a place where I started sustaining. I was getting sick all the time. I was getting multiple injuries and um, it got to a point where I was, uh, you know, out on uh, an injury, you know, an extended injury uh, period of time. And uh, my parents took me to the doctors and I had like the testosterone of an elderly individual. And so now I'm, you know, 13, 14, I should have, you know, pretty prime testosterone levels. Uh, Everything was tanked. I mean, uh, my sex hormones were tanked. My thyroid was tanked. I had a bunch of nutrient deficiencies. Vitamin D was, I mean, nil essentially. So there was not only, um, you know, hormone imbalances or or hormone deficiencies, but also mineral and and, uh, micronutrient deficiencies. And so really it kind of like set off something in my parents' head, like there's something going on, but there is no, now keep in mind, we didn't even know about a male athlete triad, let alone I'm yeah. over 10 years in advance of relative energy efficiency, which is actually the consistent statement that they made to tie in males and females. So up until that point, up until 2014, they only acknowledged this as a male, as a female issue. So it wasn't like they were going to diagnose me with something that there wasn't even in the literature. And but so good for your clinician to actually look into that kind of lab testing to begin with. No, hundred percent. Right? I was very yeah. fortunate. And here's the thing. So they actually sent me, and this is a really interesting thing that actually has led me to where I am now. They sent me to a physical therapy clinic because I had a bunch of injuries and stuff. And I was very fortunate that I had a physical therapist who also was a bodybuilder. And then I had, they had an assistant and um, he was a nutritionist. So I had like this perfect you know, a compilation. I'm honestly so blessed because at this point, I don't know, like I look back 20 something years, like, I don't know if I'd find that now today. Like we have accessibility to many things, but they really reinforce this thing. And I talked to my clients about this, about fueling for the work required. And that term wasn't what they utilized, but it was essentially was you need to look at nutrition as fuel for your tank. And so they always gave me analogies about like, you know, gas in the tank and, and things like that. And so they really paired the fact that I need to rebuild my body through weight training which I wasn't doing at that point. I really was, you know, doing a lot of calisthenics and a lot of endurance activities, but I didn't want to lift weights because I was scared to, to put on uh, muscle as, and as well as weight. I was very weight focused at the time. And so they, they kind of put this coordination of building my body through resistance training and then also fueling for it. So I was 14 or 15 getting protein powder and protein bars. And like, these are yeah. really terrible products when we look back, <laughs> but they really reinforced the fact that I could build my body rather than break it down. And it was a mindset shift that I'll tell you, I was a young impressionable individual and it got me from this state. And I always make this comment of the state of scarcity, the state of mental and physical restriction mm-hmm. and subtraction, always thinking about what, what else could I, I subtract from my meals to abundance and addition. I started focusing on more protein per meal, more plants, more vegetables, you know, higher calorie intake, really looking at the nutritional or the nuances of nutrition. And I'll tell you, it took a couple of years to really get like to a place where I was confident with myself because with those things, a lot of times what people don't realize there's a psychological aspect to it as well. So you feel like you need to do this. Your coaches told you to do this. And I look back now and that was probably the first, um, I guess, unfavorable experience I had with coaching, to be honest with you guys. I was very early on. It was very impressionable. And I always take that in consideration because you could have a coach. And I've heard this from so many, I I mean, so many clients that I've worked with that they had a coach, whether it be a physique coach, uh, a bodybuilding coach, 
uh, a track coach, whatever it may be, even a college athletic coach that said, you could afford to lose some weight. And that one comment has stuck with those individuals for years. And I'll tell you, it took me years to break out of that cycle. And I've seen grown women that are now 10 years removed that have, I'm now helping them to break the cycle of under eating after years of, there was a comment from a coach in college that told them, hey, you could probably run faster. You could do better. You could jump higher if you lost some weight. And we mm. have to shift the paradigm from just being weight focused. I find a lot of women, especially, um, they are always looking to be a smaller, lighter version of themselves instead of a stronger, leaner version of themselves. So I really tried to shift that paradigm. And so for me, I was very fortunate. I was around good influences, but I also realized at that point that I was in control of this. I could help myself and I could make sure that I was sticking to the dietary habits that would ensure that I had great energy availability. So at that time, this is the early 2000s. I've stumbled on, on Alan Aragon. I'm starting to read about nutrient timing and all these different yeah. things that I now utilize 20 years later. Um, but it was really something that it took a lot of, it took being willing to be scared of something because initially you're doing the exact opposite of everything you've done previously. Yeah. You were going from being the person that like, throws things out at dinner. Like your parents tell you to clean your plate and you hide until they leave. And then you scrape the, the extras out or you cut out the carbs from your meal, even though you feel like shit during your runs or your training session to being that person to say, I need this. I'm going to put this in because this is going to help me perform better and really shifting to instead of how much my body weighs on a, on a scale, which literally only measures your gravitational pull on this earth to, yeah. I want to, I want to improve how my body looks, how my body feels, how my body functions, how I perform and really looking at it from a performance mindset. And I really think that if a lot of people took that on and transitioned to a mindset of abundance in addition, that they would immensely benefit in every area of their life, not only nutrition, body composition and training. Yeah, no, and it, that speaks volumes. It really does. And thank you for being open and vulnerable with, with your situation. But we actually have a client um, who is in high school, came to us last year, um, and he's a wrestler. And um, his parents were like, his coach wants him to cut weight. I don't want him to cut weight. He was walking around the year before spitting in water bottles. And I'm like, no, nah. I'm like, how much is he? Uh, where, where do we want to go? And I was talking to him on a personal level, just me and him chit-chatting. And he's like, I want to get big. I want to get strong. He's like, I saw your photos. I'd love to look like that. I'm like, it's cool. Oh, it's yeah. it's going to take many years, right? And I was like, but we can't underfuel you right now, especially like at your age as a freshman in high school, your hormones are kicking in. We can't suppress that right now. I was like, if you want to grow, you're going to have to wrestle at a higher weight. You might lose a couple matches, but imagine how good you're going to be when you're a senior. And he's like, okay, wind up doing really well um last year he started off a little shaky losing a couple matches but we found a nice good weight for him that he wanted to settle in at then this next year we actually go in and he's up about 10 pounds and they want him to cut down and he's telling his coach no i'm staying and he hasn't lost yet this year so it's yeah. and he's a sophomore and it's awesome because he's wrestling kids that are juniors cutting down that are stronger than him but he's matching that and actually beating them now so it's it's pretty cool because we're fueling him the right way we're not going into this to where oh okay we're going to do this older lighter stuff where you're going to be older we're going to cut your weight so you have an advantage it's like why why do that like are you going to be an olympic wrestler maybe maybe not but odds are probably not so let's focus on optimizing your health and being you know like supporting your hormones at this current age in order for you to be the best that you can be not taking away from that right so it was a similar situation. I just connected the dots there, but thank you for, for opening up to that, man. Absolutely. That's a beautiful thing. And if we actually look into the literature on weight restricted classes like MMA, uh, Taekwondo and wrestling, there are deleterious effects to uh, weight cutting, especially with the water restriction. But there's actually a case theories that I can send you, Vinny. It's by Carl Lange Evans. Uh, he's a researcher out of um, 
I think Bath University in the UK, and he's done full case studies on just MMA athletes, on wrestlers. He even did one on, uh, I believe his name is Patty Pemberton or something. He's like a, a UFC fighter. And mm-hmm. it was like the lowest testosterone values they've ever seen clinically. Oh, uh, yeah. Patty, any yeah, single, yeah, the yeah. Irish boy, yeah. Yeah, yeah Patty the Batty. That's what they yeah. call him. Mm-hmm. And um, he had the lowest clinically, or the, the lowest um, clinical levels of testosterone they've ever seen in anything in the literature because of the deleterious effects of weight cutting. So yeah. really when it comes down to it, you know, encourage him to get fueled. I'll tell you, uh, my actual roommate in college was a national champion wrestler uh, in both high school and then also went to actually transferred from Monmouth to, uh, to wrestle at Penn State under uh, Kale Sanderson. And yeah. he was someone that it was another individual that was a great influence in my life because he was all about fueling for the work required. He was going to train for hours a day, but that kid was making sure he was pounding down calories. So we yeah. rated that, um, that cafeteria when we were in college. And so really when it comes down to it, like don't think short-term in terms of what can I do in a season? And this is yeah. for everyone else in life. Uh, you know, this is for every client that we have, whether you are a physique athlete and you're a competitor trying to get on stage. If you are a lifestyle client, just trying to look great for the summer, or you are a high school or collegiate athlete and you're really trying to optimize things going forward. Don't think of things in the short term in terms of what can I do this phase with a coach or what can I do this season in terms of how, how great can I look by spring or what can I, can I do by this you know time period or, or this season in terms of my competitive, you know, um, athletic endeavors, whether that be bodybuilding yeah. or this show, think about what can I do long-term and how long can I sustain this? Because a lot of people, unfortunately, those that go really hard with the short-term mindset are those that burn out. And then they're suffering the ramifications of what they've done because they've dug themselves such a, a deep hole that it's very hard to get out of. When you take more of a longevity minded approach, I'm not talking about like longevity in terms of low protein intake and all these things. I'm talking about longevity and keeping in mind, let me put into my body, things are going to really nurture both my physical, my mental, and my physical development. And so if you can take on that that mentality where you know that there's phasic periods where you're going to diet, but you're not going to stay the vast majority of the year in a dieting state. And that's really where we see the differentiation between adaptable low energy availability and problematic low energy availability. When it's sustained for very extended periods of time, it becomes problematic. But actually, when we look in the literature on low energy availability, it's adaptable. So if you do it for short periods of time, like a dieting phase, or for instance, like if we go back ancestrally, like from a famine perspective, we had to go periods of time without eating and we adapted to that, to that stress. It's just when we extenuate these things with long durations or severities, or you go into a a really aggressive energy deficit, try to lose weight as quickly as possible. That's where it goes from something that's an adaptable stress to a problematic stress. So we really have to kind of toe the line and really be, um, very intentional with our decisions around nutrition, training, lifestyle, and everything else we do to really optimize the results that we get from the, the work that we're putting in. Because there's so many people that they put in a ton of effort in terms of their gym, their training, their diet, but they're doing a lot of the wrong things. And so they could be putting 100% of their effort, but they've been misled or they're just following you know, nutritional protocols or regimens that aren't right for them. And they're not getting out a great return on investment. So find an approach that works for you. Realize that there, you should be fueling yourself more than you're restricting yourself, especially mm-hmm from a time perspective in terms of the time course of the year, you should be dieting far less frequently than you are eating at least at maintenance or in a slight surplus. And you really should be fueling yourself for your training sessions and for your day-to-day life to really have to expand the quality of your, your body composition, your training sessions, and your overall life. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to actually end this episode, man. That was that was awesome. That was a good send-off. Um, but I, I totally agree with you with um, spend more time out of the diet than you do in the diet. Uh, Cause it's only going to make the dieting process that much easier too. Um, but Brandon, um, why don't you just let our listeners know where they can find you, where they can find your content. We, we know you're on thousands of podcasts, but you have your own podcast as well. Um, so why don't you let people know where they could find you and where they could hear you and, and learn more from you. 
Absolutely, guys. Well, first and foremost, thank you guys so much for having me back on. This was an absolute pleasure. And it's always great to, to dive into complex topics with you guys because you guys are very both educated. And uh, I really enjoy the type of, uh, you know, twists and turns that we could take within questions. Uh, I don't often get these in-depth questions, but I do like and really enjoy answering them. So first and foremost, thank you. And then in terms of where you guys can find me, I post daily content on Instagram. I haven't missed a day since 2017, and I hope to be able to keep that going. So that is at Brandon DeCruz underscore. And then I post a weekly educational podcast that I'm doing solo right now, which is the Chasing Clarity Health and Fitness podcast that drops every single Friday, which can be found on Spotify and iTunes. And for anything else, coaching, consultations, inquiries, whatever you guys need, you guys can find me at BetaCruzFitness at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, Brandon, thank you so much again for coming on. And you know, we're going to have you on again. <laughs> hey, I'm always down, my guys. I love it. Thank I love you. It. Thanks, man. On behalf of Balanced Bodies, we just want to say thank you for joining us on this episode of the Balanced Bodies Blueprint. We are committed to bringing valuable content. And if you enjoyed today's episode, we'd greatly appreciate it if you can take a moment and like it and leave a five-star review. On Apple, just go to the show, scroll down to the bottom and rate it there. If you're on Spotify, go to the show's page, click the three dots, and you can rate it there as well. And if you believe in the power of knowledge, share this episode on your social media to try and get the information out there to as many people as possible. And as you navigate your own path towards better health, remember that Balanced Bodies is forever in your corner. See you all next week. The podcast content may include discussions of medical topics and health-related information. However, the information provided should not be considered exhaustive or complete, and it should not be relied upon as a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment.